Welcome to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan Rosenthal. My name is Andre Gonoella. And today we are incredibly thrilled to be joined by Ian Bremer. Now, for those who may not be familiar with Ian's background and work, he is president and founder of the leading political risk consultancy, the Eurasia Group, as well as G Zero Media. Ian hosts G Zero World. He's frequently on TV stations we know and love and is a prolific writer. He's written 10 books, serves as editor-at-large for Time Magazine, and somehow manages to find time to teach at Columbia. Uh, Ian, I could certainly go on, but uh, we are here today to discuss Eurasia's recently published top risk report for 2021. There's a lot to dig into, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It really is a pleasure. Good to join you guys, absolutely. So Ian, I guess we'll just start right from the top of the report, because risk number one is number 46 which refers, of course, to the 46th president, uh, Joe Biden. Considering the events of just two days ago, we're recording on Friday, two days ago we saw the storming of the Capitol. Has this changed anything about how you perceive risk number one? Well, he certainly has. <laughs> I'm not sure in good ways. Um, I mean, you know, first of all, on the let me say that when we came out with the top risks, the single biggest pushback I was getting was how can you not say that coronavirus is number one? How is that number two? And I'm like, well, at least we have vaccines to respond to COVID. If we didn't, it'd probably be number one. I don't have any idea what the vaccine is to deal with the delegitimization of US political institutions. I wish I, wish I did. Uh, it's why it continues to get worse. And, you know, as much as I would like to say, oh, thank God, we had this major crisis in the Capitol, but we got through that. And, and now that means that we can start, you know, healing and repairing. I don't think that's true. I, I, I mean, it may, this may feel a little too raw to say, but I, I don't think the crisis was big enough in the United States to matter, to move the needle. I mean, you know, the most surprising thing in some ways for me was not that the Capitol building was stormed, but rather that literally hours after that, you still had a majority of Republican representatives in the House voting to overturn the electors, which is, I mean, kind of an astonishing thing. And, and what it basically says is, yeah. That happened, and we condemn the violence, but actually, now we still think Trump actually won, and Biden's an illegitimate president, and we're still going to fight and game on, as usual, and let's focus on you know, our own personal politics and legacy and all the rest. And that is, that's an incredibly damaging thing to do, because what we're doing is normalizing this activity. In the same way that we've sort of normalized the autonomous zone and the wackos there in Seattle and normalized all the looting that went along with the riots in Washington, D.C. this summer. Uh, And, you know, there's just so much of this. You can draw a dotted line right through all of this. And some of this is on the left and some of this is on the right. But all of it is deeply problematic for the world's most powerful country. Without a doubt. And I, I got to say, I was probably one of those who, when I first read the report, was surprised that uh, the first risk was, was 46, but you guys were spot on. Uh, it's, so if we dig into this a little deeper, right, we now have a democratically controlled Congress, soon to be presidency. 
Uh, and so what does this kind of mean for the Biden administration, right? With the seizure of the Capitol, right? We have half of the country not seeing this as a legitimate presidency. So what does that mean for this quote unquote Biden mandate or the attempt for the Biden administration to kind of shepherd in their own policies? Um, well, the fact that they managed to take 50 seats in the Senate, bo- both of the runoff seats in Georgia, I mean, some of that is changing demographics in Georgia, but a lot of it is Trump. Uh, a lot of it is Trump's willingness to question the integrity of the election, which meant that fewer Republicans turned out um, than, than otherwise would have. I, I think this was an election that the Republicans could have fairly easily won and didn't. And, and I, I largely blame Trump and his supporters. Uh, and I, I mean, people like Sidney Powell, for example, Lynn Wood, others that were you know, pretty significant on social media and cable news that really drove that message. Now, because of that, uh, Biden and the, you saw the markets really pop uh, on, on the Georgia Democratic wins. And that's for one very simple reason. We're now going to get $2,000 checks and a $3 trillion stimulus that will pass in the early days of the Biden administration. And that does matter. I mean, for in the teeth of the worst crisis of our lifetimes, that kind of money, which will go to working class and unemployed, whether you voted for Trump or Biden, it'll go to help bail out states teetering on bankruptcy, whether they're red or blue. That is an absolutely useful thing and will help. It will help, but it's a Band-Aid. And it's important to understand that it's a Band-Aid because I'm also looking at the House of Representatives quite likely returning next week to vote for an unprecedented second impeachment of President Trump. And I have to tell you that if I'm Trump, I probably want them to do that because it will be almost a completely party line vote. Maybe you get 10 Republicans to support it. The vast majority of Republicans will vote against. That helps Trump, doesn't hurt him. And I don't, I don't think McConnell will want to proceed uh, with, with a vote uh, in the Senate uh, because it makes some of his moderates vulnerable. So they run out the clock um, until the inauguration happens. It, it divides the country more. And, and I, I do believe that the United States today is by far the most politically divided and dysfunctional of all of the advanced industrial nations. I, I don't think what we've seen this week in the United States could happen today in Japan or Germany or Canada or even France or the United Kingdom. I don't think that. And that obviously matters for the future of our own country, but it also matters a lot for the geopolitical order, for you know, what happens uh, going forward with our allies, with our adversaries, uh, with the architecture of how the world is run. It's, I think it's a very big deal. Certainly. And I, you outline the justification for risk number one and it being risk number one very well. But now risk number two, COVID-19, the coronavirus. We all find ourselves in this pandemic. And I mean, much of what we knew last year is just completely forever changed. It's almost accelerated developments over the next decade into this year, as some have said. And, you know, we're seeing these vaccines being distributed and different countries are starting to like make progress in that. But what are the implications of COVID-19 as we head into 2021? And what particular sub-risks should we be watching out for? Yeah, in 2020, uh, COVID was really principally uh, a, a health risk. 
it was about lots of people getting sick and dying. Um, and the economies were shut down, but the governments and the central banks all responded, even though they weren't coordinated, they responded quite strongly, very few exceptions to that. Uh, in 2021, uh, COVID is not principally a health issue. I mean, it is right now. We had 4,000 Americans dead just in a day this week. But, but um, you know, in very short order, within, within, you know, weeks, eight to 10 weeks, we will probably have 10% of the American population vaccinated. That 10% reflects almost everyone that is in danger of dying from COVID in the country. So mortality will go down to 10% of what it was literally by the end of the first quarter. That's a very big deal. And that's going to happen in Europe. That's going to happen in Japan. It's already, ha it's already happened in Israel. It's already happened in the UAE, for example. So um, I do think that the nature of COVID as a threat changes very dramatically quite soon. And thank God. But economically, we all know that there's a very big difference between the people that can do their work from home, like you guys and me, and those that can't, those that are in the knowledge economy and those that are not, those that have college degrees and those that don't. And this coronavirus really accelerates that gap. So the, the difference between rich and poor, um, which again, with, with Biden coming in with 50-50 with in the Senate, becomes less of a near-term problem in the United States. But still, across advanced industrial economies, this gap is going to be felt and is going to be felt in a very challenging way more people evicted from their homes, more people um, that can't take care of their kids, more people that lose their jobs. Um, and it really does increase inequality in the wealthy world. Perhaps at least as importantly, maybe more important, is the gap between rich and poor nations. Because as we are vaccinating our populations, it will take a lot longer to get vaccines into the arms of the low and medium income countries. And those governments don't have the money. They don't have the fiscal flexibility um, to allow for longer lockdowns um, and, uh, and to pay their people, which means particularly in places like the Middle East, also suffering from lower energy prices, which is structural, um, and, and Latin America with very significant second wave of cases and hospitalizations and not great healthcare infrastructure, but nowhere near the ability to take care of their working and middle class. This is going to be hard for them. It could lead to financial crises in these countries. I mean, places like Turkey, Nigeria, South Africa, uh, some more basket case economies like Lebanon, Argentina. These are countries that could truly have financial crises in 2021. Without a doubt. And you, you mentioned many important issues here, but one in particular is technology. And we, we've seen kind of a global reckoning when it comes to, to data, the control over information, whether it be companies or countries, it's, it's constantly debated. It's largely unregulated on the international stage. And so with these technology companies having more control over our personal data, um, Ian, what, what can the West do to kind of reconcile this competition with China while also attempting to maintain the privacy of, of its citizens, right? Should the international community establish a world data organization, as you've called for, what can uh, the West do in order to wrangle the challenge that is technology and data and the cyber realm? Well, one of the reasons why it's a problem is because you have an awful lot of people in America, including political leaders, that are deeply concerned 
that the tech companies have too much power, they're monopolies, they don't pay enough tax, they need to be broken up, they need to like, you know, they're not doing anything about all the disinformation on their platform. And then you have a lot of people that are deeply worried that China increasingly has these dominant tech companies that are every bit as capable, some even more capable and larger than American firms. And we have to fight them. And we need our tech companies to be patriotic and support the military industrial technological complex. Those two groups of people, if this was a Venn diagram, there is no overlap in those circles. And so it's really hard to have political solutions because the solutions for one actually undermine the other. If you're concerned about China and a technology cold war, you want to actually strengthen American tech firms as the most important national champions. If you're most concerned um, about dystopia and the lack of uh, civil society in the United States and these rapacious companies that make so much money, but everyone else is going out of business and, and out of work, then you want to over-regulate and break these companies. Uh, what do you do about that? Now, you mentioned that I was calling, I have called for a world data organization because I think one way to start to address this is to coordinate with like-minded allies that care about rule of law. The Europeans have stronger regulatory presence and big market size, but the Americans have all the companies. And if we're able to cooperate over the medium term, we could potentially be so powerful that the Chinese want to align more with us or they lose access to all of that data. But let's keep in mind that the Europeans just signed a big trade deal with the Chinese just a week ago when they already knew that Trump had lost and Biden was coming in because the, the Chinese are an attractive market and the Europeans are hedging more against the US. As that is happening, it makes it a lot harder to convince American allies that they should support US leadership on a world data organization. As you see what's transpiring this week in the Capitol building, it makes it harder to convince the Europeans they should follow American leadership on these issues. So I, mean, I don't think there are easy solutions. And I also recognize that at a time when so many people are hurting, the goose that lays the golden eggs and the reason why the US markets are doing so well, they are these tech companies. I mean, that's how we're getting through coronavirus. That's how we're dealing with these lockdowns. That's going to be the strongest part of the U.S. economy after vaccines. And the idea that we're going to go after those companies with heavy regulation, say we're going to break them up. I mean, we've got some antitrust cases. Those will take years and years to play out. It's hard to imagine. So I, I think that even though we can identify what some of the solutions are, we should, we should be honest with ourselves that those solutions are not coming soon. Uh, speaking of leadership, uh, you have written a book on this idea of G0 amidst, you know, the group of eight and the group of 20, this idea that no one country wants to take leadership now. And like we're seeing these leadership vacuums pop up in the international global order, especially in our goals to achieve net zero amidst G0 in climate change, which has been a longstanding risk. How realistic is it for the international community to make meaningful progress in actually fighting climate change when it's so fractured right now? Oh, we're going to make a lot of progress in fighting climate change. I mean, the most extraordinary uh, upside uh, from coronavirus is just how much focus on climate and a transition away from fossil fuels is accelerating as a consequence. I mean, if it's not for coronavirus, first and foremost, Trump gets reelected. Um, and, and Trump has been almost a climate denialist, certainly a skeptic, um, and has been in favor of fossil fuels and, and, and coal. 
uh, Biden is exactly in the opposite direction as president elect and the, by far the most important person, the most important appointment he's made is, is, uh, is John Kerry in a new cabinet position dealing with climate, which will get staffed up pretty heavily. So that's a big shift. The European relief and redistribution is overwhelmingly focused on sustainability. That also means if you want to trade with Europe, you've got to align with those standards. Xi Jinping sees the writing on the wall. He's focusing more on net zero, made the announcement for 2060. Uh, Boris Johnson has moved in that direction sharply because he doesn't want to be on the wrong side of Biden uh, now that Trump has lost the election. Um, you know, uh, uh, Suga, the new Japanese prime minister, has made his, that's his first big announcement coming in as well. So, I mean, in terms of net zero, uh, moving towards reducing carbon emissions as quickly as possible and trying to avoid three, four degrees of centigrade warming on this planet, the catastrophes that would induce on human beings, on other species, on the economy. Uh, I feel more optimistic coming into 2021 than at any time in my life. Uh, but that's net zero. You asked me also about G zero, and and G zero means that despite all of that move, uh, you're not going to see cooperation on the international stage. You're going to see competition, and in the same way that I'm very excited that we have all of these vaccines, but we're not working on those vaccines together. So the Chinese will export vaccines to certain countries faster than the U.S. can. They'll get more influence over those countries, and we're going to fight more. The same thing is going to happen in climate. I mean, you're going to see the United States and China fighting to dominate the post-carbon energy development um, in terms of wind and solar and, uh, and, and, and smart grids and supply chain and rare earths for electric vehicles. And this is going to create, um, frankly, more competition and less trust between the United States and China, the world's two most important economies. Um, I think the Europeans are going to move towards more assertive tariffs on countries that have more carbon intensity um, in the early stages, like Russia, like China, and by the way, like the United States. And that makes it harder for the United States and Europe uh, to come together more closely. Not to mention, you know, people like Brazil, President Bolsonaro, um, who is kind of a climate denier himself. And, the most significant economy in South America that will have a real hard time working closely with either the Americans or the Europeans. So it's interesting. At the same time as the as the world is moving to finally address climate in a more significant way, and the markets are doing that too, finance is doing that. I mean, obviously that creates problems for big oil producers like you know the the Saudis and the Russians. But it also is going to play out in terms of geopolitical tensions that are intensified. And I think the first point there is well understood. Everyone knows the Saudis are in trouble if they can't pivot their economy quickly away from fossil fuels. But, the but we're not thinking, there's been this view that when, that when the Americans finally turn to climate, it'll be save the whales and it'll be plant the trees and, and it'll bring us closer together with the Chinese and the rest of the world. And actually, that's not going to be the case. There are all these different areas of, of competition and confrontation that you've you've talked about, and I think the U.S.-China relationship is is a very crucial one. It's a prominent risk uh, in your report, but but Ian, I want to ask how you think the Biden administration will approach China. Are we on the verge of conflict, or given the domestic turmoil in the United States, will the U.S. kind of turn inwards and and not focus on competition with China as deeply as 
you know, maybe the Trump administration has, particularly on the economic front? Um, we are going to have uh, very sharp areas of conflict with the Chinese. That's not going to go away uh, with Trump. Uh, we won't have uh, sudden uh, volatility that comes from a presidential tweet. It'll be more thoughtful. It'll be more coordinated um, with uh, the Biden team. Um, and I don't think Biden will refer to coronavirus as the China flu. So there'll be less overt jingoism in the policy. But uh, the level of competition and confrontation with China on issues like espionage, cyber attacks, South China Sea, Hong Kong, Uyghurs, um, technology, uh, I just mentioned climate, vaccine nationalism, that, that's going to be pretty sharp. That's one of the few areas where you have broad bipartisan agreement in the United States that you need a more hawkish policy in China. But I want to be careful here in not taking this too far. I had a debate with my good friend Neil Ferguson a few weeks ago. And, and Neil said that we are in a Cold War with the Chinese right now. And he's wrong. That's not true. Um, the, there is immense economic interdependence between the United States and China that precludes a Cold War. And the, these are very strong vested interests in both countries that make it impossible for us to cut off the Chinese and cut off our interdependence with the Chinese, whether it's Chinese tourism to the US or Chinese students paying full freight at American universities, or whether it's Chinese manufacture of goods that Americans consume, um, or whether it's the future of the NBA and in five years time, them still thinking that the Chinese market is the most important for their growth. That's not going to stop. Now, there is a decoupling. And that decoupling is happening most sharply in the tech sector because our most important companies like, you know, Facebook, for example, um, and Google uh, do not have access to the Chinese market. But even there, I mean, Tesla is a tech company and Tesla is up to their eyeballs in China. Elon Musk is very quiet about that. I wonder how that gets resolved. I mean, we like Tesla, right? Because it's actually worth more than all the other US automotive companies combined. And they're very innovative, but they also have a lot of data. They're not an automotive company, they're a tech company. And so aren't they going to be part of the great divide in the decoupling as tech becomes more important with the internet of things and anything with a chip in it that can be surveilled and can be hacked uh, and can perhaps be disrupted? So, um, you know, it's a very challenging question. It's easy to say that the confrontation will remain. It's easy to say there's no trust between the two countries. But the, the one thing I would say very clearly, which I think is a reason for some hope, is that um, it would be a massive strategic failure for both the United States and the Chinese if we were to end up in a Cold War with each other. And, and by the way, the leaders of both countries completely understand that. Uh, ultimately, I think that's a useful thing. So Ian, with Europe, Brexit has finally happened. Angela Merkel, a German chancellor, is in, her, is in the final months of her time as leader after 15 or 16 long years. And your report says that France's Emmanuel Macron will essentially be the EU's de facto leader. So how does Macron, amidst you know backsliding member states and the financial distress of COVID, how does he lead the European Union? Or maybe the better question is, can he actually keep the European Union together? Yeah, he can keep it together, but he there's no way he would have been able to drive through 
the massive redistribution and relief that effectively is a Marshall Plan for poorer countries like Greece uh, and Hungary and Poland um, in the EU. And Merkel, with Macron's support, was able to do that. So you're losing a lot when Merkel leaves the stage. You also lose a lot. I mean, Merkel was, yes, she's the one that is the architect of that deal with the Chinese, and ultimately the U.S. doesn't like that. But she's also the one that has kept uh, uh, the Turks uh, from fighting uh, with the EU uh, in terms of, you know, uh, cobbling together a, a deal on the refugees that the millions that the Turks are, are keeping in Turkey right now and not letting uh, move on through to the continent where they would be very happy to travel um, has put more limited sanctions on on Turkey uh, for the fights uh, in the eastern Mediterranean and over Cyprus with Greece um, in, uh, in in exploration of resources. Macron it would be much more assertive on all of these issues and, and you could see much more confrontation as a consequence. So there's more geopolitical risk, more traditional geopolitical risk that comes out of the Mediterranean and more broadly uh, in North Africa and the Middle East when Merkel is gone. And also it's harder to drive more support economically for a stronger European Union, even though von der Leyen and Lagarde are doing very good jobs um, in, uh, in Brussels and in Frankfurt. Um, once Merkel is gone. This is the number nine risk out of 10. Europe is a very big place. So it's not something I think is a very significant worry in 2021, but it is um, a change in trajectory. 2020 was actually even, you know, with the pandemic, 2020 was a pretty good year for Europe. It was less polarization. It was more leadership. It was responding effectively on balance. And the, and the big exception to that, of course, was the UK, which isn't in Europe anymore. Absolutely. Well, Ian, what a perfect way to wrap up this conversation. Your, your insights are truly invaluable. Now, for those listening, make sure to follow Ian on Twitter, at Ian Bremer, to get the latest on geopolitical happenings, always with the perfect amount of humor, as well as crucial updates on his right-hand canine moose. And also, you know, be sure to check out all the things that Eurasia Group and G0 Media are doing. Uh, and check out Puppet Regime. It's my personal favorite. Yes, they're actual puppets. It's political satire. It's fantastic. Uh, Ian, once again, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Be good, be healthy, avoid people. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. To hear other fascinating conversations, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at BirdbagPod. And be sure to check out our new weekly newsletter to get apolitical analysis of world events, linked in the description. Thank you for listening. This is the Burn Bag Podcast. Thank you.